I'm Andrew O'Hagan, host of a new podcast from the London Review of Books. It's about the bloodiest and most controversial event of the Falklands War, the sinking of the General Belgrano. Margaret Thatcher was accused of a war crime. The truth would only emerge in the pages of a private diary. This is the Belgrano Diary. Listen wherever you get your podcasts. You're listening to the London Review of Books podcast. I'm Thomas Jones. Joining me this week is Lale Khalili, a professor of international politics at Queen Mary University of London, whose most recent book is Sinews of War and Trade, Shipping and Capitalism in the Arabian Peninsula. The last time she was on the podcast, we talked about General Stanley McChrystal's business self-help manuals. Today, we're going to be discussing the mysteries, or maybe that's not quite the right word, of management consulting. Lally recently reviewed in the LRB, When McKinsey Comes to Town, The Hidden Influence of the World's Most Powerful Consulting Firm by Walt Bogdanich and Michael Forsyth. McKinsey's unethical activities pack the pages of this book, she writes, while its supercilious vocabulary of values and service runs like an oil slick over slurry. Hello, Lally, and thank you very much for joining me again. Hi, Tom. Nice to see you. So when I graduated from university in the late 1990s, a lot of my contemporaries were recruited by management consulting firms. There was this process known as the milk round, where companies would tour British universities gobbling up the most promising candidates. For some reason, they didn't come after me. But I have occasionally thought, as Allen Ginsberg didn't put it, that I saw the best minds of my generation destroyed by management consulting. You have since escaped, but you were hired by a consulting firm straight out of university. How did, how did they lure you in? I was indeed. Um, okay, so I uh, have a degree in chemical engineering. Um, and I had for the two last summers that I had still been a student worked as a student intern um, at a chemical plant, um, which at the time was owned by Amoco, and was later um, acquired by BP. Um, and these, uh, the, the chemical plants were, the chemical plant produced olefins, which are the basic building block um, for a number of chemical petrochemical materials including plastics and so the particular chemical this particular chemical plant was um, in an area called chocolate bayou which is um, near Galveston uh, in Texas and I worked there as a summer engineer for two summers uh, along with other summer engineers um, from uh, I think one of the people there was from the South Dakota School of or North Dakota School of Mines and a couple of others from other places and we all lived together in a flat in Galveston and I didn't drive at the time and didn't have a car, but the, one of the other um, summer engineers did have a car and she would drive us to work. And the work itself was, uh, you know, summer engineers. It wasn't that fantastic. We worked in the front of the house and I was in, I can't remember which one of the summers, but in one of the summers I was given the task of looking for loopholes in environmental regulations. Um so about emissions in particular. And because this was supposed to be a kind of a route into a proper engineering job after graduation, they would also get us to go into the plant itself and meet up with the guys who worked in the back of the house. So they're not the engineers, not the people who had engineering degrees, but people that were members of the union and worked in the plant itself. So, you know, when we hung out with those guys, it was it was an incredibly interesting experience. Um, they were very 
sardonic. They were really funny. They were fabulous. They knew so much more than we ever did uh, in the front of the house, at least the summer engineers. But they were also looked down upon by the engineers in the front of the house. And so, uh, I, you know, I grew up in a left-wing family um, and that kind of a distinction that was being made by the front of the house colleagues between those who had an engineering degree and those who didn't chafed me. I also really didn't like the fact that the jobs that I was given, as I said, was to try to find loopholes in um, environmental regulations that were being brought in, I think, in the early 1990s. And so this was like an anticipation of that. And so when I was near graduation, I started looking around for other jobs. Um, I also knew that I wanted to go to medical school. Um, so my undergraduate degree was chemical engineering, but I had taken all of this like organic chemistry and biochemistry and things like that so that I could have a biochemical engineering degree, which could be a route in the US. It was a route to it was a pre-medical route to medical school. And so I thought, OK, well, I'll just find a job for two or three years and, you know, make a bit of money, pay off the student loans that I already had accumulated for my undergraduate and then go to med school. And so when, uh, you know, the banks would come around and look for you, um, although less so like the Goldman Sachs and more like the regionally based banks looking for investment bankers um, and management consulting firms would come and look for you. And I knew nothing about banking, didn't want to have anything to do with banking. So management consulting seemed fine. Uh, they had these big uh, recruiting events and they would bring in engineers and also people from the humanities and social sciences. Um, and, you know, would the, in these big events, you would get to talk on the sidelines and sometimes they would wine and dine you and would bring you in. And, and, and to me, that seemed really uh, quite an attractive. I, I really didn't know what they did. I mean, we all joked about the fact that we didn't know how to explain what we did to our grandparents. You know, but it was it was very good income, or at least I thought it was very good income. And uh, and it allowed me, you know, a couple of years respite, um, I thought, until I could go to medical school. And so I signed up with the Anderson Consulting Office of uh, the Houston Office of Anderson Consulting um, to become a management consultant. If you had tried to explain what you did to your grandparents... What was your, how would you describe what the job involved? I mean, at the time, I think at the time, we all would say that what we're trying to do is to streamline the business processes that people had in uh, in their workplaces. Now, I would say that our job was essentially to act as a kind of an alibi for businesses uh, reorganizing in such a way that they let people go to extract as much as they could out of their workers to essentially um, become a kind of a, a evangelist uh, for business streamlining, efficiency, and all of those other buzzwords that essentially means subtracting the human out of the business processes because humans are messy and intransigent and troublesome. Yeah, I mean, on the face of it, it doesn't seem such an unreasonable proposition advising companies on how they can run their businesses better. Yeah, I mean, it's also really interesting because, of course, I worked for Anderson Consulting and Anderson Consulting was, and under its new moniker, Accenture, it changed names um, in the beginning of this century. 
under the, that name, it has become one of the largest software implementation businesses in the world. And it was already a software implementation business. So management consultant was really comprised of two sort of categories of things, uh, two categories of works, um, those that were about software implementation, which is what I did. And then there was the kind of stuff that McKinsey does, um, which is about uh, strategic consulting, um, business streamlining, uh, etc. The business streamlining that we did as software planners was essentially to automate jobs, more or less, or or to install, this was in the early 1990s, to install softwares that did some of the uh, human resources or customer service or uh, various other kinds of uh, business functions uh, that at the time were being done by clerks in back offices. And, and we were essentially... Um, automating them out of jobs, really. I mean, I think that's the simplest way to talk about that. I think the management consultants that worked on strategic consulting and streamlining, people like um, Mackenzie, Booz Allen, others, um, what they did was actually to look at processes and they would make suggestions about how to get rid of certain areas of work or how to introduce new managerial levels or how to decentralize certain business functions so that they happened in different locations. Essentially, it was reorg, um, which is here in the UK, we're familiar with, you know, every government that comes into power, every business administrator, that uh, every new CEO that comes comes in every new university vice chancellor that comes in, they do some sort of reorganization to fit whatever their vision is of what the organization should look like. And those management consultants essentially provided both blueprints and alibis for those kinds of works. And even if it were, we accept for the moment that it's a benign in principle, the activities that Bogdanich and Forsyth outlined in their book are pretty shocking. I mean, I'm not sure that they're benign in their principle, because I think that principally what the role of the management consulting is, is precisely to ensure maximum extraction of capital from the works that a business is engaged in. And that means from the workers that are engaged in that business and that maximum extraction of capital, whether it's through streamlining or through automation or through providing clearer lines of management or inserting more middle managers is actually a really quite malignant process because it often ends up throwing up in the air um, uh, systems that sometimes work maybe clunkily but work fine and by throwing it up in the air you essentially displace some workers you end up um, creating problems in in other uh, instances in the last few years for example a number of universities have used management consultants to uh, redo for example their student um, uh, uh, databases or to redo their finances and it often uh, has translated into to, for example, when they've redone the finance back office, when they've re or put a new software and it has resulted, in my own experience, uh, not being paid, for example, for work that we've done, you know. And so in a way, I'm not entirely sure that principally it's benign, but it's certainly in, in practice, it ends up being actually very malignant. And, and in the case of McKinsey, um, Extraordinarily so, in part because McKinsey is supposed to be the management consultant to uh, the greatest and the goodest, if you will, of the uh, of of both the governments and corporations. So on that account, I mean, management consultants sound like 
class war mercenaries almost that they're sort of I like that yes they are uh, they they are kind of class war mercenaries um and you have the really quite um ordinary foot soldiers that do the job of automation and then you have you know the generals um who uh, uh end up uh completely reshaping entire institutions organizations whether they're private or public in that sense the things that Bogdanich and Forsyth describe in their book, for example, the, the steel workers dying because of cost cutting, that would seem like a bug, that maybe actually those are features. Because if the aim, if efficiency means getting rid of workers, disempowering workers, then it's not very surprising that you make these efficiency savings and, and workers end up dying. I think there is a cost-benefit analysis involved in what sorts of things you cut and what sorts of things you don't. And I think that that in that cost-benefit analysis, um, cutting back the cost of maintenance or uh, creating new scheduling system that brings in less experienced people that, for example, do the maintenance in the case of the steel workers or in that Disney um, incident where roller coasters were not maintained as regularly as they should have. And so somebody who was riding the roller coaster ended up dying because of that. In those kinds of incidents, instances, I think uh, efficiency ends up being much more important than almost anything else. And so what you end up having, we see actually elements of this in um, during the COVID pandemic, for example, where you, you see that uh, supply chains that have been tautened, um, tightened to become efficient. So they have become so taut that there's no backups, there's no uh, ability to replicate them. And so efficiency in that instance has actually ended up resulting in extremely fragile supply chains, where if you have one little kink in one place in the supply chain, it ends up breaking. And, you know, those are cost-benefit analysis that I think that a lot of management consultants engage in. And um, whether they do so uh, consciously or they just do so because they, as part of the whole process of streamlining and efficiency making, um, the, the effect often is that the human element is seen to be valued less than the capital that can be extracted out of that business. I mean, the other thing about efficiency, which is so often said to be a good in itself, that any system in order to be safe needs to have a certain amount of redundancy built into it, right? Because I wouldn't, I wouldn't want to walk across a bridge that had been designed so efficiently it could support precisely my weight and no more. I wanted to walk over a bridge that can support 20 tonnes or whatever that is there. Yeah. I mean, that's one of the reasons, I mean, there are many, but one of the reasons for the current crisis in the NHS Absolutely. is that there is no spare capacity. So if you're so efficient, what happens when you have an emergency? You have to, without that redundancy or spare capacity or inefficiency... The system, as you say, with the overstretched supply chains, and it stops working. I think you're absolutely right. And in the case of um, the NHS, I mean, one of the things that we know is that McKinsey has been so incredibly deeply involved in every single reorganization that has, has come about, uh, that various successive governments have forced on the NHS. Um, and I wouldn't be surprised to find out that uh, McKinsey has had, I mean, I don't know, but uh, I wouldn't be surprised to find out if McKinsey has had a hand also in these, uh, in, in the non-existence of any kind of a, 
uh, social care plan, which is which is also one of the reasons why the NHS is failing right now. So in the absence of social care, we're finding um, vulnerable elders, for example, being dumped into the NHS um, with uh, basic illnesses or even when they're not ill, they just need a little bit of support. And I think that when that happens, of course, as you say, in the absence of a spare capacity or processes that have been tightened to the point where they're like... Bow strings, um, they will break inevitably. And that's what we're seeing today. I mean, one of the many striking things in your piece, as you've mentioned just now, is how much of these companies' work is for governments rather than other private companies. Because you might think that they're a private sector concern, but it it really isn't, is it? The, the amount of, of work that McKinsey and others do for governments is remarkable. Well, it's partially remarkable because the governments, uh, governments everywhere have such deep troughs <laughs> of funding to feed from, you know, to, to, to feed to these management consulting firms. Uh, it, w- since McKinsey came to town, came to London uh, in the 1960s, when it opened the London office in the 1960s, its biggest clients, um, perhaps other than oil companies, really, in terms of the kinds of work that they've done, ha- have really been the, the British governments. They um, have been involved in Every every single institution that was at one time a state um, institution or organization, everything from British Rail to British Steel to uh, British Telecom to the NHS, and you you could just keep going. All of these institutions have been subjected um, to multiple rounds of uh, McKinsey consulting reorganizations, decentralizations, processes, and uh, and and it's almost this kind of a failure that reproduces yet more work for the management consultants. So they fail at doing whatever it is that they're supposed to do, creating efficiencies, creating savings, creating whatever. And when they fail, they're brought back in to fix the mess that they themselves have made. So that's one thing. But the second thing is that one of the things that is for me was really interesting is that on the one hand, they're supposed to be these extremely... uh, good uh, sort of parasites, uh, management consulting firms feeding off of other businesses and businesses specifically. And they're supposed to be extremely good, as you said, mercenaries of capital. And yet uh, they have quite non-ideological attachment to making money. <laughs> so so when the when the government, British government wanted to take British steel um, uh, into, uh, wanted to nationalize it, wanted to take it into state ownership, they were quite happy to help with that. And when under Thatcher, 13, 14 years later, they decided to, Reprivatize National Steel. Mackenzie was there to also help with that. So, and in each of those instances, they must have made very rich fees. Um, every round of NHS um, reorganization under both Labour and Conservative governments um, has had McKinsey, uh, McKinsey's fingers in it. Um, advisors to Tony Blair working on the NHS were McKinsey partners. And then when they have also political advisors that hadn't been McKinsey partners leave and become part of McKinsey, there's much the same way that there's a kind of a military industrial complex uh, revolving door. There, There is also a management consulting business process um, revolving door where uh, management consultants come into positions in the government and hand out to their former or future colleagues um, extremely profitable contracts um, to reorganize some government institution for very handsome fees. And presumably there is a case to be made that if the money that was 
spend if all the money that has been spent by the British government on management consultants over the last 50 60 years had instead been spent paying nurses and and railway engineers then the railways and the NHS would be in a far better shape than they than they are today and i think that it's to me it's also really interesting because um one of the things that um is taken to be writ, particularly by the strategic consultants, not so much by the software ones, is that um, middle management are always going to be necessary. And so what you end up seeing is the processes of quote-unquote decentralization, which which happens to be one of the ways in which a lot of these uh, management consulting firms um, do reorganization, essentially produce smaller and smaller pods or silos in which middle managers tend to act as a kind of a disciplinary rod for the central business of whatever the organization is. And so you have more and more people doing that middle management job and fewer and fewer people doing the actual work. We see that in universities all the time. And, and I think it's, it's um, you know, a source of uh, great discomfort and annoyance where their um, ad- administration in universities becomes more and more bloated as the people who are actually doing the job, which who are the um, uh, academics and their professional services colleagues who support them, uh, become more and more overworked. Yeah, which sounds fantastically inefficient, but it's, the, it's but it's a different different kind of inefficiency. Yes, exactly. I think that the definition of efficiency is is essentially extracting as much capital as you can with uh, you know with uh, for, for as little cost as uh, or investment that can be put forward um, in the humans that work in that business. And I think that that's the definition of efficiency that is uh, you know most prominent in a lot of these management consulting businesses. And you mentioned that McKinsey opened their London office in the nineteen sixties, around nineteen sixty. I mean, management consulting hasn't existed forever, or even in the 19th century. They weren't advising the East India Company or the Union Pacific Railroad. It was a 20th century invention. And it comes out of, it rises out of a whole set of processes in the US in particular. So you have Frederick Taylor and the whole um, scientific management business, which, as um, your listeners might know, uh, it tries to do all sorts of things to make workers more efficient and faster. So breaking tasks, for example, into breaking the work that workers do into small, uh, discrete tasks, which can be better monitored or timed or whatever. And so there's all these kinds of um, looking at the processes that workers in a business Business are engaged in and trying to uh, rationalize it, streamline it, uh, essentially reduce the amount that uh, human messiness um, or initiative would be involved in this. Um, I mean, as this goes back as far, you know, as Charlie Chaplin's uh, great satire on industrialization, where the human worker in the factory ends up becoming, you know, a cog in the machine. That's one kind of a area from which we see practices like management consulting emerging. And second one, um, which is where you you get more of the sort of the software side where you're looking to automation or you're looking to more engineering solutions to whatever you consider to be the problem that you're trying to solve. And that comes out of the um, US continental colonization of its West. Um, And so all the railroads that are being um, 
built over the course of the late 19th century and early 20th century into the West and the penetration and consolidation of the state um, in the West. Um, it, it produces a lot of engineers, but it also produces a lot of people that look to engineering as a solution for other problems that may not be engineering problems. So, um, and, and so you end up having these two areas from which one sees management consulting arise. Um, and it becomes quite a significant factor in the ways in which the US business is conducted domestically, but also becomes really quite significant as part of the Cold War in the immediate aftermath of the Second World War, where the US, um, where it wants to ensure that capitalism is thriving, uh, it sends its management consultants to do some of that work for it, to create new um, uh, ways of doing business, um, which uh, essentially grafts um, American-style notions of bootstrapism um, and uh, entrepreneurialism and process uh, streamlining and efficiency, etc. It, it, it exports those to all sorts of places. Um, and so we, you see, for example, Arthur Little, Arthur D. Little, which was one of these management consulting firms, you see them, uh, you know, being sent off to Puerto Rico and um, others, Booz Allen Hamilton, being sent off to uh, Egypt and uh, Philippines. And so you have all of these management consulting firms that go overseas in places where there is uh, where the US is afraid of uh, communism gaining a foothold. Uh, and so the, the management consultants go in there in order to create new ways of doing business that perhaps inoculates those places against communism. And it continued after the Cold War as well, didn't it? That you, you begin your piece with that process of colonial, neo-colonial, neo-imperial wealth extraction that in, in South Africa, post-apartheid South Africa... Yeah. Uh, So originally, um, I wasn't even going to start with uh, the piece, with the um, story of uh, the Gupta family and the way that they essentially co-opted just about every single big name management consulting firm and accounting and professional services firm that you can imagine uh, into their businesses. So what I wanted to start with was like talking about transparency and what management consultants do and what they do here in Britain and perhaps COVID. But then the more I started reading about the Guptas and I ended up actually going to um, uh, South African websites uh, to to, to look at it. And there's, there was one particular rabble-rousing South African website um, whose name uh, I, I can't remember right now, but it translates into Scarab. Um, and, and their motto is something like, we roll into the shit so you don't have to. Uh, and what they do is they actually do this really amazing investigative journalism. And they had become interested in these three capitalist brothers, the Gupta family, who had made extremely intimate connections with Jacob Zuma, former president of South Africa, but also other ANC um, uh, leaders and politicians um, across all levels of government. So all the way from the central government to the state governments, provincial um, and municipal governments. And the Guptas um, ended up 
essentially using the South African government and its contracts as um, as as uh, bank accounts, if you will, to, to just extract as much as they could. And they did so through a whole set of processes. In some instances, they installed their own people in positions um, in, in these institutions. They essentially hobbled the revenue collection and ta- you know tax collection processes and investigations of the tax utility there. They inserted their own people into a variety of other other public utilities um, ended, or ended up getting extremely lucrative contracts from these public utilities, which they didn't fulfill or fulfilled very badly and and so made a huge amount of money. Um, uh, the, the current president of South Africa, Cyril uh, Ramaphosa, claims that they have extracted something like 38 billion US dollars out of the the South African government, essentially. And what is really interesting, and this is where the management consultants come in, is the extent to which McKinsey, um, uh, PwC, PricewaterhouseCoopers, um, and uh, KPMG were all involved in various bits of their businesses. Um, so, for example, one of the rules that was put into place um, after the end of apartheid in South Africa was that there was a positive discrimination clause. And by so doing, there was a hope that uh, that, that, that there would be a kind of a redistribution um, of uh, wealth from foreign-owned businesses to black-owned businesses. What the Guptas did was essentially create lots of front companies, um, which ostensibly had black owners, but which essentially funneled money to them. And many of these front companies then ended up actually partnering with McKinsey and trying to get contracts for, for example, the port management or rail management company or for ESCOM, the um, the electricity utility or the water utility or etc. And so... Um, it, it it is impossible that McKinsey, for example, didn't know where this money was going. Um, it is impossible that these accountants, uh, for example, would not know that the money that paid for extravagant parties that the Guptas threw uh, was actually being rerouted from the government contracts for, uh, for example, uh, different kinds of projects that were supposed to benefit communities were being rerouted through uh, secret bank accounts on the outside to pay for extravagant parties. In one instance, the Guptas had a niece, Vega, who was getting married to um, another business person, it seems like to be a business alliance of a sort. And the wedding that they threw for um, Vega in Sun City cost something like two million US dollars. They flew in all sorts of people from uh, New Delhi uh, uh, who who managed to land and not have to go through passport or visa checks. They flew in um, hundreds of chefs uh, to... to, uh, to actually um, serve any kind of food you can imagine for the for the wedding, there were kind of ridiculous uh, multi-day ceremonies um, and the invitation list, which incidentally you can actually look up because one of these investigative journalist um, out- outlets has po- pay- 
posted that PDF for the invitation list online is like a who's who of the ANC politician uh, body, but also a who's who of various kinds of businesses. So you have KPMG partner, um, McKinsey partner, PwC partner, and it just goes down the list. And and so the, all of these people were co-opted. And I believe that whoever was doing the audit for um, the Guptas um, actually wrote off uh, Gupta, uh, the 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 uh, Vega's wedding uh, as a business expense. Well, there's some honesty in that, you could say. I mean, it clearly was a business. <laughs> <laughs> yes, yes and no. But what is also interesting is that the money for that, uh, so this is also quite significant, the money for the wedding had actually come out of a bank account in the United Arab Emirates. And what had gone into that bank account, the money that had gone into the bank account, had been payment by the South African government to a dairy firm to produce milk in a community in order for for this community dairy to actually pay for nutrition, but also provide jobs. Um, and, and so they paid several million to what turned out to be a Gupta front company that then took all of that money sent it to that bank account in the United Arab Emirates while the cows that had already been bought starved on the farm itself. And so there's this incredible sort of dishonesty that such an you know extraction of funds from a variety of sources could not have gone unseen, unobserved. But there was just... Um, there, there was no sense uh, of ethics uh, or uh, honesty or transparency in any of the firms that had a way in, that had a way of looking at these businesses. They just didn't care. They were, they were making money, so they were happy to um, turn a blind eye to the Guptas making money as well. We'll be back in a moment, but first I'd like to tell you about the LRB's new Close Readings podcast subscription. If you missed out on signing up to one of our Close Readings courses for this year, don't worry, you can still access the audio for all three series, that's Among the Ancients, Medieval Beginnings and The Long and Short, for just four ninety nine a month or forty nine ninety nine a year. That's 36 episodes in total, which you can listen to in most podcast apps. To sign up, go to lrb.me forward slash close readings or click on the link in the description. And there's a similar story in with the, um, during the, the, at the beginning of the COVID pandemic with the um, fast track PPE contracts and all the rest of it in, in the UK. And I don't know, I mean, how much management consultants were involved in that, but... I mean, I think when we when we did our previous podcast on General McChrystal, one of the things that I um, mentioned was that when I was doing research um, to write that piece, I was completely blown away at... And, and and I shouldn't have been surprised, but I was completely blown away by how incredibly large the health sector is in terms of the amounts of money that goes through it. Um, and so what had been really striking for me was that McChrystal's management consulting firm had immediately latched on to the COVID um, trough and had made so much money at different levels of government, states, municipal, etc., by providing consulting services around questions of uh, COVID processes, um, public health, etc. And I know that that was also the case here in this country. For example, management consultants were brought in not only on those PPE contracts, but also the track and trace business, the track and trace software, which ended up being uh, 
extraordinary. 30 something billion pounds were spent. 37 billion, yeah. On a track and trace software that was completely and totally. Um, it, it really was a terrible kind of semi-functioning uh, software where they could have paid for an out-of-the-box or gotten uh, similar software from elsewhere. And what was interesting about this was that Dido Harding, who was put in uh, charge of the track and trace um, software thing, she herself had been a management consultant at McKinsey. And when people complained, for example, about some of these incredibly dodgy, unethical PPE contracts that were given, the person in charge, the the, the person put in charge of the ethics uh, committee, ethics overseeing of these ethical overseeing of, or transparency of these uh, contracts, was Dido Harding's husband, who herself, who himself, had also been a McKinsey consultant. So you, it's just this incredible kind of network of ex-McKinsey folks that you know, just led all of these incredibly lucrative uh, COVID contracts to their pals and buddies and um, and, and the firms. And uh, what the public got out of it was, excuse my language, fuck all. Yeah. I mean, the other thing that is on the face of it odd about the these sums of money is that, you know, the first thing the government say, we can't afford to give the nurses the pay rise. They're right. We can't afford to pay the nurses what the equivalent of what they were earning 12 years ago in real terms. But the amount that would cost is far less than the 37 billion that got Absolutely. thrown at track and trace with nothing to show for it. So the idea of what governments say they have money for and what they don't have money for. Is is precisely that. So, so for example, I mean, Mick Lynch says this in every interview um, where he is brought on to defend the RMT's rail strikes, is that the amount of money that the government has spent indemnifying the losses of the rail companies um, against these strikes could have paid for the pay rises that the rail that the, the strikers were demanding. Um, so, yeah, the government is quite happy to take our taxpayer money and funneling it to the businesses, whether those businesses are in this instance rail companies or the management consultants who or or suddenly cropping up brand new PPE uh, provision companies that did nothing and ended up walking away with millions. And some of the and of course, many of those companies um, were brought in. Um, by uh, the management consultants. Some of those processes were overseen by management consultants. That was certainly the case in the US, um, where McKinsey and others had a hand in deciding who actually got what sorts of contracts. And and, and many of the companies that ended up getting contracts were either Tories or their friends. In the US as well, they got a contract with ICE, the Immigration and Customs Enforcement and presumably paid a lot of money to do that, in which they recommended cost-cutting measures such as reducing food and medical budgets and detention facilities to save money. And presumably the amount of money they save by failing to look after asylum seekers is far less than the money they've spent on the consultants who advised them to, to do this. That's absolutely right. And what is also quite interesting about that particular instance is that McKinsey suggested this, and actually middle managers at ICE, which is not... 
you know, one of the nice, cuddly um, government security institutions were actually revolted at that. And they were like, we can't cut back food and medicine. Now, we do know that loads of people have died in ICE detention because of lack of medical care and other kinds of problems. But, um, but you know, that, that was the kinds of things that McKenzie was suggesting. What was also really interesting about that was that, of course, Mackenzie um, had gotten that contra- contract to work with ICE under Obama. So I think part of the reason that the, the shape of the contract changed once Trump came to power. And um, uh, the original contract, I believe, was for some sort of streamlining or efficiency finding or whatever, but organizational rather than um, having to do with how ICE was going to go about um, essentially managing uh, refugee uh and or migrant populations. Um, and, and I think part of the reason that that ended up becoming a scandal of a sort was because Trump was in power. I, I suspect that if Obama had been in power, the nice liberal management consultants who work for McKenzie would have found some way of justifying uh, the, the work that they were doing for ICE. I think they they became very upset precisely because Trump was in power and they didn't like working for Trump's ice. It just didn't look good. But in Europe, supposedly it was the centre-left Partito Democratico in Italy who in 2015 made the deal with Libyan mercenaries essentially to prevent people crossing the Mediterranean and that led to, well, unknown, literally uncountable loss of life. But that was a supposedly a centre-left government doing that. So, you know, these these practices don't, unfortunately, split down party political lines as, as we currently have party politics. Well, I mean, it, it, in the UK itself, you know, I'm, I'm sure that there are loads of Labour um, politicians who, well, we do know that the late... Essentially, the current Labour under Starmer is really no different than the Tories. It's just Tories light with, a, you know, and, and, and we see how all of the um, different right wing magazines are salivating at the idea of a quote unquote sensible Labour government. And that Labour government is probably going to bring in the management consultants yet again to do whatever they can to us. I mean, one of the things about management consulting, and particularly a company like McKinsey, is that it does actually capture some of the best and the brightest, some of the people that are extremely well educated, that know exactly how to sell, uh, you know, um, ice uh, or sell coal to Newcastle. Um, So uh, in a way, it's... uh, unsurprising that so many of the you know incredibly bright people are brought in to act as foot soldiers um, for capital and what is quite um, interesting to me is that some of the people doing some of the more critical work some of the more critical fascinating research are actually management uh, McKinsey management consultants so um, at the beginning of the Bogdanich and Forsyth book they mentioned some of the people that they were they, they had talked to and one of them is actually somebody whose work I absolutely am kind of uh, amazed by um, who has written uh, I can't remember her surname right now but she has written one of the most amazing accounts of how accounting was completely and totally embedded in the plantation slavery system. Uh, and so, you know, you have these incredible critical scholars who uh, have worked at some place like McKenzie, have seen what it looks like behind the curtains and, and so find it quite um, uh 
And once they leave, they find it quite uh, interesting to go and focus on these critical readings of businesses. I know that in my case, having worked for Anderson Consulting, certainly not nothing like a McKinsey, um, I know that um, whenever... Uh, we were told in the US that academia was not real world. Uh, I would say, trust me, management consulting is even more of a fantastical world than than education, university education could ever be. And and seeing how things worked behind the scenes was really quite useful in, in not being intimidated by uh, some of the business jargon that, that tends to cloak uh, the, the kind of basic work that these management consultants do. Uh, which is to, as I said, subtract a human with all of its messiness and intransigence out of the equation in order to encourage maximum extraction of capital. You are one of these these scholars who used to work, have a briefly a management consultancy. How did how did you leave? I mean, did did you you did your two years and went to medical school, or you? I did two years for Anderson Consulting, and then I um, had met someone via Anderson Consulting uh, and and moved to Atlanta from Texas uh, to be with them, uh, and actually left Anderson Consulting and got a job with what was then Price Waterhouse. Uh, it's now PwC, um, and I worked in. So I had been in Texas for two years. I spent another two years um, in Atlanta, and during that time, I actually was going to apply for medical school because I. I had this kind of a fantasy that what I was going to go do was um, go work for Médecins Sans Frontières somewhere uh, in the world. I had a sort of a do-gooding instinct. Um, but then medical school in the US is extremely expensive. And if I had borrowed as much money as I needed in order to go to med school, med school I would have never been able to go work for Médecins Sans Frontières, which didn't pay enough to be able to pay my student loans back. And so I um, actually halted and I started thinking about why it was that I was thinking that I wanted to go to medical school. Uh, and part of it had been because my mother had been a physician and a very good one um, in Iran. Um, but part of it was also that do-gooding instinct and so not knowing. And so I thought, okay, well, maybe I can go and do logistics for um for Medicine Sans Frontier. Um, so, you know, the, the business back end of it, where you don't need to have a medical degree. And for that, uh, there was the School of International and Public Affairs at Columbia University, which is essentially a sort of a, they, it's a two-year program out of which you come out as a uh, either local or international public um Servant. A lot of the people that graduate from there end up going and working for UN institutions or whatever. And and I signed up for that and I got in and got student loans. Uh, and uh, because it was going to be less, it was only two years, not four years like medical school had been. Um, and for the very first uh, class that we had to do, um, it was like the core course on humanitarianism. We had to read uh, John Locke. Uh, and uh, it was human rights and humanitarianism. And, and I, you know, human rights, it's a wonderful thing. And, and then I read Locke and I was like, holy shit, human rights is really all about protection of private property. And here I had been coming out of this good communist background, you know, where private property is not the common sense and, and reading about how the entire edifice of human rights and that discourse is built on protection of private property, as Locke very openly talks about. And I was like, oh, shit, I really don't want to do this kind of thing. I want to 
understand what is going on in the world. So I ended up lifting, shifting paths from uh, from sort of wanting to do logistics into kind of designing my own two year, you know, master's degree, after which I went into the PhD program in the same department. Um, and I was saved by John Locke, if you will. <laughs> <laughs> indirectly and now here you are Lali Khalili thank you very much my pleasure you can read Lali's piece in the last issue of 2022 if you have thoughts about this episode or any other please email us at podcasts at lrb.co.uk the LRB podcast is produced by Anthony Wilkes and Zoe Kilbourne the music is by Kieran Brunt I'm Thomas Jones thank you for listening <laughs>